Five things God cannot do. Now, as we consider uh, a topic like this, what is and what is not, in any kind of definitive way, um, we must establish a couple of things. What we can know and what we must experience. There is what we can know. And this must be established. It must be verified. Um, and we can do that because there is an absolute sense to truth. Doesn't mean you can know absolutely all truth, but there is truth that you can absolutely know. Getting heady already, isn't it? And so there are things that you can know, and they must be verified. Otherwise, if that's not true, then everything we think and believe is subjective, which is very popular right now, that all truth is relative and it's subjective. But it makes no sense. Because if everything is subjective, then everyone can determine their own truth, regardless of how irrational that approach might be and how contradictory those opposing beliefs become. And they don't make any sense. You know, we could say, oh, you, you can have your truth and I can have mine. And everything's fine until they bump into each other. And if my truth compromises, for example, your life, <laughs> then all of a sudden that truth is not acceptable to me. And so there must be what we can know. But then there is also what we must experience. And this is an answer to us being more than just brains or just thinking beings. We have souls. And we feel and we care and we love and we hate. And these two aspects of our being as God's uh, created beings, must coexist and can coexist perfectly together. And they can in perfect harmony if we will discover God's truth and apply, apply that truth to our thinking and our experience. So what I'd like to present to you this morning in the negative form are five amazing things that we can know about God. And they should be understood and accepted for all that they are and all that they mean. That's here. And it's truth, and it can be verified, and it needs to be. But if we stop there, then it would not speak to what we must experience. So I'll offer some suggestions and applications to these truths uh, that, that are logical conclusions coming out of what I'm saying. But more than that, we need to see this lived out in a life. And so I'm going to offer this kind of academic uh, interpolation here. Uh, of things I believe are true about God. But if that were only here, it would mean nothing to the rest of our lives. And so I've asked someone to share from their own life a true and living example of these truths that they've experienced to some degree or another. And so, after all that we've seen that God uh, can do in Hebrews, the beginning chapters, this foundation upon which we can build the rest of our Christian lives, it's also important that we see in, a, in another way some things that God cannot do and then how those things are lived out in a person's life and their experience so that, they, so that we can see the connection between here and here 
and how that turns into a walk with our living God. So, five things God cannot do. First of all, he cannot lie. And this convinces our minds to believe. Now, I take this from Numbers chapter 23, among other places, but uh, in something I call from the mouths of animals and fools, the truth of God is confirmed. This is so true that God cannot lie, that he takes a story of an absolute fool to get the point across, actually. To take the one that might be the first to say that God does lie and have him confirm that it is absolutely impossible for him to do so. Balaam was a famous sorcerer. So famous, he lived way over near the Euphrates River where uh, where Babylon was, where uh, modern-day Iraq is. And uh, he was so famous that way over in Israel, if you've got any picture of the Middle East in your mind, they knew of him. And uh, the king of Edom, Edom, Moab, whose name was uh, Balak, not to be confused with the guy I'm talking about, Balaam. Balaam was the sorcerer. Balak was this king of Edom. He was threatened by the people of Israel, who happened at that time to be wandering through the desert on their way to the promised land, wiping out kingdoms as they went, taking control of certain places. And he was threatened by them. So he wanted this great sorcerer, Balaam, to come and curse this particular people. He calls Balaam to come and curse. Balaam cannot because because God is sovereign and God will not bring a curse upon that which he blesses. He cannot lie. He said he was going to bless these people. He will bless these people. And they will not be cursed by him or anybody else. So, Balaam cannot curse, but he wants to get the money out of Balak that he can. In fact, if you go to Second Peter chapter five, uh, 2, verse 15, you'll find that out. There's a little more explanation later in the New Testament. That he was doing it for the money, so he goes anyway. And he's going to try and get some money. On the way, his donkey, who is wiser than he is, apparently, sees an angel of the Lord and tries to keep him from getting wiped out by the angel of the Lord. On his second endeavor to get around this angel, uh, Balaam finally gets off his donkey and beats it mercilessly until the donkey is actually used of God to rebuke him. Speaks to him and says, Please, I've been your faithful donkey. Quit beating me. Open your eyes. And finally he can see uh, the angel of the Lord. And then God has Balaam bless the Israelites, not curse them. And in this blessing comes this irrepressible truth from the mouth of a deceiver. God is not a man that he should lie, nor a son of man that he should change his mind. Does he speak and then not act? Does he promise and not fulfill? I have received the command to bless, and he has blessed, and I cannot change it. When Balaam is re- What Balaam is referencing here, of course, is God's promise to Abraham, the Abrahamic covenant. To bless Abraham, multiply his descendants, and bless the nations of the earth through him. And we then hear more about that particular blessing all over Scripture, but interestingly enough, in Hebrews chapter 6, where we're going to be um, on January 9th as we continue through this letter. But here, of this promise, it says, When God made his promise to Abraham, since there was no one greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. 
Men swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what is said and puts an end to all argument. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what he has promised, he confirmed it with an oath. God did this so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled to have fled to take hold of the hope offered to us may be greatly encouraged. And we have this hope as an anchor for our soul. So, Balaam cannot curse. He only blesses because God's made a promise. And that promise is then addressed here to Abraham. And he swears by to it by his own self. No greater guarantee. It's a promise. So we can look back on it and see that God did fulfill it. That's part of what convinces us that he cannot lie because what he says comes true. And then he makes an oath. And implicitly, that's something you have to wait for. It's the very nature of an oath. It's a looking forward to what is yet to come. He will do it. He has to do it. He swore by himself. So we see the summary in verse 18. God does not lie, and so that is encouraging to us. It convinces our minds to believe his promises. Now, what's essential to understand is that we have to accept his promises the way he gives them. We have to accept God on his terms. It has to be what he promised. But when we believe what he promised, well, we can trust it because he cannot lie. So, he cannot lie. Secondly, he cannot deny himself. And this consoles our concerns to trust his character. Because immediately you might say, well, okay, but... Um, can I really trust what he's then going to say, and would that be good? Well, Second Timothy chapter 2, just going back a few pages from uh, Hebrews chapter 6. In Second Timothy chapter 2, we find an interesting thing. It's called a trustworthy statement. And your Bible may have this broken off into another uh, paragraph. These were um, pithy, carefully uh, constructed thoughts that were basic and fundamental teaching points that Paul was giving his, stu- his students. In the pastoral epistles, that's where they show up. He's writing to Timothy and to Titus. And in these, he gives these pithy little statements that are packed with truth. Every word is important. And it's even believed that uh, these were taken and memorized later and turned into hymns to be learned word for word. And the importance of this pithy little thing that's full of truth, for us here, the important thing to jump out is the word disown or deny. It says in here, let's read, verse 11 of Second Timothy chapter 2. Here's a trustworthy saying. Everything in here you need to trust. If we died with him, we will also live with him. If we endure with him, we will also reign with him. If we disown him, he will also disown us. Or your Bibles may say deny. If we are faithful, he will remain faithful, for he cannot disown or cannot deny himself. Now, the important word for us here is this word deny or disown. It's used of Peter to describe him when he's denying the Lord. You remember that, right? When he three times said, I don't own, I don't know him. I, I disown myself from him. I distance myself from him. I disassociate myself from him. That's what the word is. Denial. It's also used in Hebrews 11 uh, when it's referring to Moses. When Moses disowned himself from Pharaoh's family. It says, by faith, when he had grown up, he refused to be known as. He disowned himself as a son of Pharaoh's daughter because he knew that he was a child of the chosen people of Israel. He was a Jew. He wasn't going to associate with himself. He was going to disassociate himself from Pharaoh's family. 
The word is used almost exclusively describing man's actions towards God and Jesus Christ in particular. The only time that we see this word applying to God is when this very action is exercised towards him. He cannot help but respond as you desire. So if you deny or disown him, well then he will give you what you want. Disassociation. And we see it here in Second Timothy and we also see it in Luke. If we disown him, he will disown us. And then in Luke, he, diso- he who disowns me before men will be disowned before the angels of God. Now, his character is not cruel. It's permissive towards the free will that God has given every one of us. What's also very clear in the passage is that he cannot do this to himself. Because it then goes on to say, even if we are faithless, which is the opposite of our word uh, to believe, faith, to uh to exercise reliance upon. This is the opposite. This listener has had full opportunity to accept something and has rejected it. So that's what this disbelief is. When we are faithless, God does not act like that. He is faithful. He doesn't reject what is true. It would violate his character. To do that would be to deny himself. So, if you say... I want to disassociate myself from God. God will grant you what you like. But God will never reject what is true. And so he cannot disown himself. He cannot deny himself. He stays true to what is true. You don't want him? Well, then you suffer the consequences of not being with him. But he can never do that to himself. And that consoles our concerns that we can trust his character. His character is perfectly good. He will reciprocate the denial of man toward him, but he will not reject all that is good in himself toward man or himself. We end up alone, having disassociated, if we want to, but he will never disown himself. doesn't do it within his trinity. Three persons of the Godhead. Nor will he do that with anyone who wants to be a part of him. So he cannot deny himself. So he cannot lie. He cannot deny himself. He cannot fail. And this comforts our hearts so that we can rest in hope. And this is found in the overwhelming concept in Scripture of providence. And um, we all believe that, whether we believe in God or not. Man has always created this in some structure or another. He's either created gods that are greater than he is, that, um, that, do, that do something that determine what happens, uh, and we have to keep them happy, or we do whatever we can to be on their good side. Uh, or we believe in fate, or ultimate purpose, or even fatalism. Somehow, man, because God's written this on our hearts, <laughs> uh, knows that there is something greater than he is. Even if it's fatalism, oh well, it happens, it happens. There's nothing you can do about it. Everybody creates this concept of providence in some way or another. Or it's believed on the part of a good God. We recognize that he is providentially good. And the only living God, only the living God of the Bible has proven to be providentially trustworthy. And we see this in different ways. Regarding care, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus himself says, I care for man. He causes the son, his son, to rise on the evil and the good. And he sends his rain on the evil, on the righteous and the unrighteousness. God, God is providentially caring towards man. He's also towards his creation. 
Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap and store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. He's providentially caring for man and for creation. His providence is certain. Paul in Romans says, God's gifts and his calls are irrevocable. He cannot fail to do what he's decided to do. Now, if he were not good, that would make him a tyrant. God's sovereign, gets to do whatever he wants, accomplishes perfectly everything he decides to do, and if he isn't good, he's a tyrant. That's true, but he is good. Because we go on to see that his providence is always benevolent. Romans 8.28, And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him. Now, if you don't love him, well, then you deal with the implications of disassociating yourself with him. From him, like I mentioned before. But for those who love him, all things work together for their good. Because God is providentially benevolent. He wants to accomplish all the good things that he intends to do. And he's providentially just as well. Uh, Hebrews chapter 6 tells us again, God is not unjust. He will not forget the work and the love that you have showed him and the others uh, that you loved. The Lamentations tells us this. Because of the Lord's great love, we're not consumed His compassions never fail. So God cannot fail. And that comforts our hearts so that we can rest in hope because His character is good. He's not a tyrant. He's perfectly good. And we can rest in in the hope of all that is happening and that will happen ultimately because He's the only God that's proven to be providentially trustworthy. So He cannot lie. He cannot deny Himself. He cannot fail in accomplishing all the good things that he wants to accomplish. And he cannot sin. And this compels us to worship him. You see, being without sin would be perfect. And the Bible tells us clearly that he was perfect in several ways. First of all, perfect in his identification to us. Again, Hebrews chapter 4. Remember, we don't have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weakness, but one who has identified with us in every way, yet without sin. He's perfect in his identification with us on earth. He's perfect in his life on earth in Christ Jesus. First Peter tells us he committed no sin, no deceit was found in his mouth. And he was perfect in his purpose. First John chapter 3 tells us he appeared so that he might take away our sins and in him is no sin. Now, some have asked, could Jesus have potentially sinned? Was it necessary for him to substitutionally take our place, for him to be our substitute? Was it, did it have to be possible for him to be able to sin and then to not sin and that's how he took our place? It's an interesting concept, isn't it? Would that render God sinful if he could sin? Well, I'm going to ask you to go to Rick Bernor for the answer to that particular question. However... Let me say this. The fact that he accomplished it perfectly without sinning dismisses the possibility that there is any sin in him to ever be concerned about or questioned because he did it perfectly. And therefore, I don't believe that he could sin. But even if it was and had to have been potentially possible for him to be the appropriate substitute, it didn't happen. So it's not an issue. And it is finished. Complete. I don't think he can. But he didn't. And that's what's most important. He cannot sin. 
And that compels us to worship Him. I praise Him because He knows me and He knows temptation. He knows my weakness. And so I praise Him for identifying with me. And I praise Him because He did it for me and He was the perfect substitute for me. And I praise Him because He accomplished it perfectly. There's perfect completion. And so when we grasp and think about the idea that He cannot sin and He came and identified perfectly and lived that perfect life and then took my place perfectly on the cross and rose from the dead to conquer death, I can't help but praise Him. So He cannot lie. He cannot deny Himself. He cannot fail. He cannot sin. One more thing. He cannot force people to believe. This calls us to willingly obey. Now, certainly this is the most controversial of my assertions this morning. There are those that would say that we have an irresistible grace that God has given, that it is impossible for us to resist the loving grace of God. Well, at the very least, he will not force people to believe. However, I say he cannot because it would deny his integrity in giving man an act of will and choice, the very thing that causes us to be made in the image of God. What does it mean that we're made in the image of God? I think supremely, the answer to that is that we have the ability, the prerogative, the power to choose to associate or disassociate ourselves with our loving God. Now, that's a risk that God would create a being that could potentially choose not to love Him and follow Him. And, as a matter of fact, if He's omniscient and He knows all that's going to happen, He knew that man was going to do that when He did it. So is He cruel? Because He set man up to fail. Because He creates him with the power to be able to choose, only knowing that He would choose and then would become destined to God's wrath because he chose not to follow him. Isn't God cruel? Mm. That's why some people say that God will force people to believe and he chooses whom he would love and whom he would not. Well, here's my answer to that. It's a risk, but it's not cruel. If the one to pay the highest price for that decision is the one who makes the decision. It's not cruel if the one to pay the highest price is the one who makes the decision to give the decision and he is in fact the one who will pay the highest price for that free will that he gives to man. In fact, it makes him good. Divine blessing above all other creation in giving him a free will, but then on his part, willfully dying to pay the price for their willful disobedience of creation against Creator. Do you see it? You see the beauty of this? The very fact that God would create a being that could choose to not follow Him and then be willing to pay the price of that choice Himself to redeem that person back to Himself is the very essence of the definition of what makes God good. Because he pays the price for the risk that he ran. And he did. 
And it wasn't much of a risk because he actually knew it was going to happen. But he said, I will create this being that will then choose not to follow me, but I will provide what is necessary to redeem that person back. And that causes that creation, when they understand it, to respond to him in willful obedience and say, you mean after my willingness to disassociate with you, you would associate with me to pay the price that I might once again be associated with you? You truly are good in every absolute sense. Now, let me show you one scripture passage that I think supports this, and then let me give you a few readings from Philip Yancey that will probably say this clearer than I have been able to. The scripture reference is Matthew chapter 23. Verse 37, Jesus himself, standing on a hill outside of Jerusalem, cries out, O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, but you were not willing. Jerusalem, these were his people. These were the the people of his promise and his blessing. I have longed to gather you. Apparently he could not force them to. And you were unwilling. Obviously, they had a choice and a free will to not. So Yancey writes, Do we, in fact, enjoy too much freedom? We have freedom to harm and to kill each other, to fight global wars and to despoil our planet. We're even free to defy God, to live without restraints as though the other world did not exist. Then he goes on to say, Goodness cannot be imposed externally from the top down. It must grow internally from the bottom up. The master of the universe would become its victim. That is, of man's rebellious will. For one purpose. To let human beings choose freely for themselves what to do with him. God's terrible insistence on human freedom is so absolute that he granted us the power to live as though he did not exist. To spit in his face and to crucify Him. And although power can force obedience, only love can summon a response of love. Amen, Frank? Although power can force obedience, only love can summon a response of love, which is the one thing God wants from us and the reason He created us. Love has its own power, the only power capable of conquering the human heart. Love has its own power, the only power capable of conquering the human heart. Again, one could question whether this was a a risk worth taking. (laughs) But in order to show his love and to conquer the human heart, he did it. And it was his choice. And it's not cruel if he was the one willing to pay the ultimate price for the risk that he would take. In fact, it makes him good. Supremely. Divinely blessing one creation out of all of the rest of creation to have the power to choose and then willfully dying to pay the price of that evil choice of creation against creator. That is the definition of good. In any clear understanding of who God is. And it willingly calls us to obey. Now, that was pretty heady. Let me just sum it up. And then I want you to hear this lived out in a real life 
testimony. A real person. An individual like you or me that has a story that's probably similar to yours or mine. God cannot lie. Be convinced to believe He is full of good promises for you. He cannot deny Himself, so be consoled in your concerns. His character is trustworthy. He cannot fail, so be comforted at heart. He will accomplish all the good that He sets out to do. He cannot sin, so be a worshiper of Him. He completes perfectly all the plans that He sets out to do, and so should be praised for that. And He cannot force us to obey, so willingly obey. He paid the highest price for your freedom to obey or not. Why wouldn't you want to love someone like that? That's what we can know about God. But if we stopped here, we would not experience what we must experience. So I'd like to ask Chris Perkis to come and share from his own life a true life testimony of these truths that we can know and how it is lived out in a way that we can experience. Good morning. I hope you had a blessed Christmas. When Pastor asked me to give my testimony and have it somewhat relate to the sermon, <laughs> that was the scary part, I thought of the strongest, most powerful testimony in the Bible for me. And that was when people went to the blind man who had been healed and they said, so what happened to you? And he goes, I don't know. But all I can tell you is once I was blind and now I see. And if he can give that beautiful testimony, we all should be able to give our own. I look around the congregation and I see people here who have suffered great loss and great joy and who God has blessed. And uh, that encourages me to speak right now. So thank you, Pastor. The B part of the pastor's sermon, can you all hear me okay? I'm getting a high sign from somebody that you can't. Um, The B part of pastor's sermon is the most difficult. Be convinced, be consoled, be a worshiper, be comforted, and therefore willingly obey. For me, the part of even caring about anything spiritual or wanting to willingly obey began in my childhood. I attended a Reformed church in Teaneck, New Jersey with my family. I remember finding it odd that once the sermon ended, talk of Jesus ended too. We had a nice coffee hour after church, and I wondered why no one discussed the sermon or wanted to probe any deeper into religious matters. I think this attitude was um, mostly inward because over the years, God placed On my heart, God placed, many, excuse me, God placed many people in my path who would answer questions that I had in my heart or open up things I needed to consider about God. It took a willingness on my part to open to this. I remember sitting in church and feeling as if I was struggling to get away, but that God was lovingly drawing me to himself. 
Fortunately, I grew up in a loving family. There wasn't anyone that I didn't like. My dad was a special man. He grew up on a farm in Pennsylvania and was a hard worker and worked in a factory. He was a devoted dad and spent a considerable amount of time with me. I see how busy dads are today, and I truly marvel at the fact that he spent so much time with me. I think the loving nature of my dad set the tone for how I would eventually think about God. He was loving, kind, setting boundaries and rules, and sensitive to me and the rest of the family. When I was 15 years old, I did something really stupid, and I ended up breaking both of my arms. I really think God spared me since falling 19 feet to the ground should have killed me. After my dad saw me in the emergency room, my sister told me that she saw my dad crying while he was there in the waiting room. I was so embarrassed that I lied about what happened. I actually think I took advantage of his good nature. He waited me out, and it was years later that I finally confessed to what really happened. He told me that he knew my account of what had happened was fictitious and that he knew I would tell him someday. I'm just glad that I got to tell him before he died. I credit my dad with making a strong and all-knowing God so approachable. He helped prepare me. One evening when I was 17, I attended a meeting where some singers were performing Christian music. After they finished singing, they talked about Christ and then asked if there was anyone there who wanted to accept Christ into their heart. I thought this was weird, since I had never been asked such a question before. I immediately said yes. Why not, since this is what I had been longing for? In the weeks following this commitment, God used strangers to remind me and to keep me on track. The most memorable being a woman who blocked me from going down a stairway in the public library. I became impatient until she reached into a bag she was carrying, took out a tract about committing your life to Christ, and handed it to me. She didn't say a word. She just did that. Okay, God, I get it. I think was my response in my heart. He needed to remind me of what I was committing to. I have been blessed to see how God uses prayer. I have no insight as to why God chooses to answer some of our prayers and not others, but I do, without a doubt, know he answers prayer. Just before I got engaged to my first wife, Janet, she told me that she had been a victim of a date rape and that, as a result, she had gotten genital herpes. She said that if I didn't want to marry her, she understood. I must say that this was a dramatic thing for us to have to consider. I told her that I would marry her anyway. But still, we prayed about this with all of our hearts, telling God that we accepted his will in this situation and for us and our relationship. When I opened my eyes after the prayer, I noticed that she had a smile on her face and a look of contentment that I rarely saw in her. When I asked her about this, she said that during the prayer, she felt a comforting warmth surrounding her. She told me that she truly believed that she had been healed. In the 27 years of our marriage, she never once had an outbreak of herpes. For those of you here who knew her, you were also aware of her back pain issues and bouts with depression, which deeply affected her. We also prayed about these issues. However, God chose not to give us the answer we sought. This was difficult for Janet to accept. I reminded her 
of how God had healed her and that God loved her very much. He had demonstrated himself in such a fashion that I could not turn my back on him. I have been blessed to see how people uses God, often unbeknownst to them. Here are two examples that I have seen in my life. Me in particular. Why God chose to show me, I don't know. I'm only grateful that I have listened. This is how God used me. I was a praise and worship leader at Hillside Church and typically asked the entire group, just openly, if they had prayer requests. But I never asked a specific individual for a prayer request. After everyone had contributed contributed this one Sunday, I asked this woman if she had a request. She did and stated it before the group. After the class, she told me that she had prayed about this in the morning and asked God to show her if she should share it. When I specifically asked her for her prayer request, she was floored. I am so glad she told me because I know I had no idea that God was using me. This is how God used my uncle. When I was a teenager, I was visiting my aunt and uncle in Florida with my parents, and my uncle took me aside to speak with me in private. He told me how people say that there's only one person that God has in mind for you to love and to be married to. He also told me how he had been married once before to a woman he loved very much who had died. Then he told me how much he loved my aunt and how blessed he had been been to have also been married to her. He said he had two loving women in his life and that most people would never understand that. At the time, I thought this was interesting for him to tell me such a thing and thought nothing more about it. It would be more than 35 years later that I would only understand what he had told me. God used my uncle to prepare me. These few examples, plus many other things throughout the course of my life, have directed me toward the Lord and, have, and then strengthened my walk with him. Reading his word has deepened my understanding of him and the truth of his character. God has used people, scripture, and events to mold me over the years, but none more dramatically than when my wife Janet died on December 19, 2006. We can't help to think right now about Chet as he grieves now. Janet was a nurse and had not been feeling well, but no one suspected that she was so ill. From the time I first called 9-11 until she died, only 42 hours had passed. So many people in this very congregation have had dramatic losses around Christmas as well. Pastor Dave stayed with me and my daughters at the hospital the entire time and was a great support to us. I was praying over her with the girls when she died. I can remember after she died when I was at home, either thinking, saying, or yelling aloud to God, I have been walking with you all these years, and I trust in you and your ways, but right now I think your plan is all messed up. I can't imagine what you're thinking. Just when Janet was starting to lift out of her depression, you take her. Your plan stinks, but I'm not leaving you. I took from my verse, Proverbs chapter 3, verses 5 and 6. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. This was the only thing that gave me comfort because I had no understanding. But at least I was willing to trust him. 
I printed it out and carried it in my wallet to constantly remind me. At my office, it seemed like there were many suffering people who just came to me and wanted to talk. Those whose dads or moms had died when they were young, those who had miscarriages, and even someone whose relatives had been murdered. I gave them each this verse. God was healing me and using me to help others heal as well. I received a booklet from my sister that was from Stephen Ministries. It was the only book that people had given to me that I could relate to because the timing of the message was so perfect. I also had a person to write to and receive handwritten letters from who became my caregiver. I could write anything whatsoever to this person because they understood having also lost their spouse near the time of Janet's death. Writing to this person was helpful in helping me to deal with new questions such as God's purpose for my life and also to receive and give encouragement and comfort to another hurting person. Plus, we shared scripture. As most of you know, this person was Nancy DeRitter, now my wife, who is a gift from God. I don't know why works, I know, I don't know why God works the way he does. Why does he answer some prayers and not others? There are some of you sitting here this morning who are still waiting for those same answers in your life. God has not deserted you. He will remain as true today as forever. He will sustain you and comfort you and bring you joy. So as I reflect on Pastor's message today, be convinced to believe. Be consoled in your concerns. Be comforted at heart. Be a worshiper of him. So willingly obey. Let's pray. Dear Father, Daddy, we thank you that you are a loving, approachable God who is always true and honest. We need a God who is consistent, always the same, as written in your scriptures over the years and as demonstrated to us even today. Thank you that you are a God that we need, a God who comforts and shows us how to comfort others, that you also are a God who is perfect and without sin. May this draw our spirits to worship you. Help us in our unbelief and cause our hearts to see who you are more clearly so that we may follow you in all things and seek to be like you in our lives. May we never be ashamed to call you Lord of our lives. Thank you that you know us completely more than anyone could. Thank you that you provided the perfect substitution in Jesus, whose birth we celebrate and whose resurrection from the dead proves our hope is real. Thank you that in Jesus all things have been and are accomplished perfectly to bring you glory. Thank you that in our lives, Thank you that in you, our lives have meaning and purpose. Thank you that no matter what our circumstances, be it health, finances, family relationships, friends, peer pressure, education, or whatever, that we have a God who is everything that we need, if we only allow you to be. May we willingly obey you and find complete fulfillment in our lives. Through your dear, precious Son, we pray. Amen.